Welcome to today's Principal's Live Lecture. I'm Professor Daniel Spiata, uh, and I'm in the English department here at Christendom. My talk today is called Our Lady's Ring, Reflections on the Structure of the Rosary. And let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Our Lady, Queen of the Most Holy Rosary, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Rosary tells a story, and like any story, it has a structure. The mysteries of the Rosary, of course, walk through Our Lady's life with Christ, her Son, and um, like, a, like a story's plot, however, they also manifest other artful patterns of arrangement. So studying the patterns of the arrangement of the various parts of the plot helps us to deepen our understanding of each mystery individually and of the story as a whole. So this lecture will lay out one such pattern, ring structure or chiasmus, and it will also reflect upon how these uh, mysteries help to illuminate each other. I want to be clear that uh, I do not think by any means that this particular way of meditating on the rosary that I'm going to describe today is the only way, or by no means, that uh, my reflections will exhaust the meaning of the mysteries of the rosary. But I do want to submit this method um, of reflection as one effective way to come to a deeper understanding of each of the mysteries in itself and as a pair with another and therefore of the rosary as a whole devotion. I have one other sort of caveat to make. Um, the chiastic structure, which I hope to articulate right now, applies to the 15 mysteries of the traditional Dominican Rosary. Um, so I won't be considering in today's talk the luminous mysteries uh, which are recommended to us by St. John Paul II. So the first thing that I want to do is just to explain some of my terms, especially what is chiasmus or uh, the ring structure. So uh, chiasmus is a figure in art, uh, in literature, and it comes from the Greek letter chi or ki, which is basically just an X figure. The idea is that the first part of a line or sequence in a plot relates to the last, and the second relates to the second to last, and so on and so forth until you sort of work your way to the center. So there's a development towards the center point, and then a development out towards the, towards the uh, sort of final. Point. So an example in a line of poetry would be this. It's from John Keats's St. Agnes Eve. Out went the taper as she hurried in. If you look at the words or hear them, we have out and in at the beginning and the end of the line. Went is the second word, the verb, and it pairs with hurried, both verbs of motion. And then taper or candle works with she, the person who comes in to the room. Um, so interestingly enough, one of the other sort of benefits of the chiastic structure is that it focuses our attention in on the centerpiece, on the crux, as it were, of the figure or more largely of the plot. So in this particular line, out went the taper as she hurried in, taper and she are drawn together at the center. So there's a, a likeness between the candle and the, the person being talked about. The same might be true uh, of, say, the line from the Song of Songs. I, um, my beloved is mine, and I am my beloved's, right? My beloved in the middle. 
Uh, on a larger scale, chiasmus can function at the level of sort of the whole organization of a plot. For instance, um, the, the book of Joel is a manifest a chiastic structure, and it centers in on a verse which it says, who knows, maybe the Lord will return and leaving, leave us a sacrifice, an offering of grain and of wine. It's a sort of Eucharistic uh, moment right at the center of it. All right. Um, so let me see if I can apply this to the rosary as a whole. So I'm, I want to name the seven pairs of mysteries and then note which mystery is the center, and then I'm going to offer some reflections which will seek to make good on the connections that I see uh, between the elements of the seven pairs and uh, some further reflections on the centrality of that central mystery. So the seven pairs, the first mystery, the Annunciation, and it pairs, of course, with the last, the Coronation of Mary. The Visitation will pair with the Assumption. The Nativity will pair with the Pentecost. The Presentation of Our Lord in the Temple will pair with the ascension of our Lord into heaven. The finding of our Lord in the temple pairs then with the resurrection of our Lord from the dead. The agony of the garden will pair with the crucifixion, the scourging with the carrying of the cross, and the very central mystery of the rosary will be the crowning with thorns. Okay, so I want to now just consider and offer some reflections on each of these pairs. Let's look at the Annunciation and the Coronation first. In the Annunciation, the Blessed Virgin is alone and cloistered in her house until she is visited by an angel, Gabriel. Of course, Gabriel's mission is to announce uh, God's plan for saving his people, and especially by means of the Incarnation. He offers Mary the opportunity to practice faith in God and to receive him into her womb, which becomes, as the Eastern liturgies proclaim, more spacious than the heavens. That is, God descends from heaven into Mary. This offer of housing the Lord uh, turns on the gift of flesh to God's infinite Godhead. In responding with perfect faith, Mary demonstrates in a preeminent way that she is the handmaiden of the Lord. Each of these details is then echoed in the coronation. The Lord has added maternity to Mary's virginity. To her handmaidenly obedience, the Lord adds the sovereignty of universal queenship. In the place of the single angel, Gabriel, who announced Mary's role to her as God's emissary, now the entire choir of angels receives Mary as its queen. Whereas Mary had received Christ descending into her all-spacious womb, now Christ receives Mary or has received Mary, ascending, assumed into heaven, into his heavenly kingdom. Where Mary had offered Christ mortal flesh, Christ here perfects Mary's body, making it spiritual, incorruptible, and glorious. Even the image of crowning unites both of these mysteries. The crowning is sort of central and obvious to the last mystery, the coronation, but how does it apply to the Annunciation or the Incarnation? Well, we turn to the Church Fathers for this one, for elucidation. Reading in the Song of Solomon, the Church's great hymn of its love for Christ, especially chapter 3, verse 11, the patristic commentators saw a reference that links the Incarnation with the notion of crowning. The whole passage tells us of the wonderful procession of Solomon, um, 
here typifying Christ as he is revealed in the song's audience for the first time in the flesh. In verse 11, we read, Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his, mo his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. So the fathers uh, read this day of his wedding typologically as referring to the incarnation where Christ married a human nature to his divine nature. Thus, the crown with which his mother crowned him becomes the symbol of his human flesh. Christ takes on his humanity as a manifestation of his royal sovereignty over us, his brethren, and indeed uh, over us as our king. Both mysteries, then, are coronations, and both have to do with the weddings of humanity and Godhead. In this pairing, we can see the bookends of salvation history, as it were, the story's beginning and its end. Mary begins with faith and ends with sight. She begins with obedience and ends with authority and glory. She begins, just, um, she begins just as she is coming to know Christ and ends with the permanent establishment of human divine unity. At the beginning of the first mystery, human flesh is merely finite and naturally mortal. Within it, humanity is inseparably united to the Godhead through the incarnation. And by the end of the last mystery, human flesh has been spiritualized and crowned and inseparably united to Christ as bridegroom. Move forward and consider the visitation alongside the assumption. Both mysteries here show us Mary in motion. Telling us of the visitation, Luke writes, in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country. That detail is fulfilled or perfected as it were, in Mary's assumption, where Mary arises and goes in haste, sort of an instant transfer, as it were, into heaven. Both mysteries share a common reference also to the Ark of the Covenant. In the visitation, we see the typological fulfillment of King David's bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. We read about that in 2 Samuel 6. On the way, for David, the Ark tarried in the house of Obed-Edom for three months, bringing it blessings. Now, Mary stays with Zechariah and Elizabeth for the last three months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, blessing, uh, bringing the blessing, that is, of Christ's incarnate, though hidden, presence. When the ark resumed its journey, in David's story, it proceeded amidst rejoicing, especially characterized by David's leaping or dancing. In response to Mary's voice, John famously leaps in Elizabeth's womb, like David. Now, how does that connect to the assumption? Well, in um, Magnificentissimus Deus, the apostolic constitution that defines the dogma of the assumption, the Pope of Blessed Memory cites St. Anthony of Padua's exegesis of Psalm 138, 132, verse 8, among the biblical and traditional bases of that dogma. Now, that verse reads, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Just as, the, as Christ arose from the dead with his glorified body and entered into heaven, so the ark, the Blessed Virgin, also ought to arise with her glorious body and go to her resting place in heaven. So both in, mysteries also um, involve a paradox of hiddenness on the one hand and the manifestation of power on the other. In the visitation, Jesus is visibly hidden 
inside of Mary, but made manifest in the power of her voice upon John. In the assumption, Mary's physical body is, as it were, hidden from our view, but by its miraculous absence, the power of God is made manifest. Let's think about the Nativity and the Pentecost together. In the third pairing, we can discover the public manifestation or birth, as it were, of Christ under two different aspects. We have to think about Christ in two different ways. Of course, in the Nativity, our Lord is physically born, brought forth into the world so as to be seen. Christmas makes public the reality of Christ's physical body, which had come into existence 40 weeks before at the Annunciation. Similarly, the great Pentecost is the moment in which the church, the mystical body of Christ, steps forth into the public square. Both the Nativity and the Pentecost begin in hidden places. Jesus is brought forth under the ground in the stable, in the cave, and the church bursts forth from the upper room. Christ's salvific passion, we can see, right, the major event that has, that has transpired between the Nativity, I mean, obviously there are many major events, but the major one that has transpired between the Nativity and the Pentecost, right, is um, his salvation of us. And so we see the motion from the under the earth to coming down from above, right? The, the mystical body of Christ comes down from above, from the upper room. Also, if we take Epiphany as part of the Nativity, we can see a sort of fire from heaven. Um, in both, say, the Star of Bethlehem, and then also in the tongues of flame that rest upon the Apostle's head in the Pentecost. Similarly, both have to do with the evangelization of both Jews and Gentiles. The angelic choir beckons the shepherds, and the Star of Bethlehem guides the Magi, while the Apostle's first preaching is heard by each listener, many from far distant lands, in his own language. Whereas the birth of Christ was heralded by the angelic choir singing glory to God, the birth of Christ's mystical body is heralded by a new sort of messenger or angel, that is the apostolic choir. But things are altered by Christ's passion, for the angels at Bethlehem preached to the Jews near Jerusalem, whereas the apostles bring the good news to the Jews in exile and then ultimately to the Gentiles as well. Let's proceed. The presentation and the ascension. Both the presentation of our Lord in the temple and his ascension into heaven take place after 40-day periods. In the joyful mystery, Jesus was brought to the physical temple in Jerusalem by Mary and Joseph in order to redeem him according to the law of Moses. That is, after the required 40-day period of purification, parents would buy back their firstborn sons from the priestly service, which had been lost to all Israel except for the tribe of Levi, after, um, after they worshiped the golden calf in Exodus. Right? So the original plan that God had set out was that all of the firstborn sons of Israel would become priests. After the golden calf, God revokes that and gives the priesthood to the, to the Levites. Um, and so he also then says, you have to redeem your firstborn son. So our Lord is, as it were, being redeemed from the priesthood. Of course, however, we know that our Lord is going to invert this just like he did with the baptism of John, suffering the baptism of John. He obviously didn't need it for the repentance of his sins, but rather to enter into that and take the sins upon him. So similar, he doesn't, act, he doesn't need to be redeemed from the priesthood. He takes on the entirety of the priesthood in his own person. Okay, in the glorious mystery, back to the ascension, 
after his 40 days of teaching his new, uh, his new but still hidden priests, the apostles, Christ rises up into the heavenly holy of holies, fulfilling the action typified by the high priest on the day of atonement, right? who would go up into the holy of holies with the blood and offer it to God for the, for the sins of us all. That is, Christ brings into heaven his precious blood, offering it to the Father through the Holy Spirit in order to make eternal intercession for us, as we read in Hebrews book 9. Also, some other wonderful little tidbits. Um, In the presentation, Mary and Joseph are greeted by two prophets, Simeon and Anna. And in the ascension, the apostles are met by two angels. In the presentation, Simeon discovers Christ, proclaims his divine mission, and becomes free to depart in peace. In the ascension, Christ departs and commissions his disciples to bear witness to the gospel, even to the shedding of their blood. Both mysteries present something of a mix of joy and sorrow as well. The presentation is the fourth joyful mystery, but it also includes Our Lady's first dolor in the prophecies of Simeon, the sword that will pierce her heart. The ascension, too, presents something of a mix. Luke's gospel, Luke gives us two accounts. Luke's gospel indicates that the apostles returned to Jerusalem with great joy. But in the Acts, he indicates that they paused in some consternation for a while, so that the angels had to come down and say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heavens? Okay. Simeon had been given assurance by the Holy Spirit that he would not die till he had seen the Lord's Christ, and seeing him led to the prophecy of spreading a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people in Israel. In the ascension, the apostles lose sight of that same Christ, only to feel his presence more strongly in their own hearts, and to receive his inspiration, or the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, which would drive them out just to fulfill what Simeon had heard, to manifest the glory of Christ to Israel, and to spread that revelation to the Gentiles. Our fifth, or sorry, our our next pairing, yeah, our fifth pairing, uh, the finding and the resurrection. Like the last pairing, both the finding of our Lord in the temple and the resurrection take place after a period of waiting, this time for three days. In the fifth joyful mystery, the Holy Family goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, but our Lord stays behind. Mary and Joseph go a day's journey to discover Jesus' absence, return, and then they search. Luke writes, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers. And again, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And this astonishment elicits Mary's question, Why have you treated us so? Your father and I have been looking for you in great distress. Which, in turn, elicits our Lord's mysterious response. Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This mystery manifests Jesus' divine sonship through his own words, and through this authoritative teaching of the elders of Israel. Jesus' tone suggests to us that Mary and Joseph have perhaps let Christ's divinity slip from the forefront of their attention. They're focusing in on him as their son. He reminds them who his his sort of full father is. He reminds them of his divine sonship. This reordering of the relationship is only temporary, though, in Luke's gospel. Jesus immediately then follows his parents back to Nazareth, and was subject to them. 
Similarly, in the account of the resurrection, it includes a trip to Jerusalem for the definitive Passover, literally the Passover to end or better to fulfill all Passovers, a trip from which Jesus does not return. We pick up the narrative of the resurrection itself with the women who come uh, on the morning of the third day searching for Christ. But paradoxically, they, uh, they're surprised at first, not by discovering his presence, but by discovering his absence. Um, Later, when Mary Magdalene returns to the empty tomb, she finds Jesus, but does not recognize him. Like Mary and Joseph, she seeks him in a human light, first regarding him as a gardener, and if we remember, of course, that he is the new Adam, then she's probably not that wrong. Um, And then, when he has called her and she recognizes him, she thinks of him as he has been, their teacher. Even that seems to remind us of um, the finding in the temple, right? Where they find Christ as a teacher, teaching the, the teachers of Israel. In response, though, Jesus utters these mysterious words. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. That is, he reminds her of his divine sonship, of his um, sort of incarnational uh, need to be with the Father, and offering up the sacrifice of his of his passion to the Father. So he reminds her of his divine sonship, corrects her view of the relationship that they share. And in this case, the reordering of the relationship is permanent, at least until Christ has ascended and Mary can receive him eucharistically. Then we can cling in a certain way by, by letting him take us over. Also, when I think about these two mysteries together, I like to reflect on the connection between the young Jesus' teaching of the elders in Israel, in the temple, and the sacrificed Jesus teaching the souls of the holy ones uh, in Hades. And also, um, I, think, I think this is perhaps uh, maybe a stretch, but I think interesting enough, uh, we might compare how Jesus amazed the teachers of Israel. Right? He amazes them by his teaching when he's a child, and then he amazes the Sanhedrin by his resurrection. So let's move into the sorrowful mysteries. The sorrowful mysteries then would form a chiasm of their own uh, that fits in with the broader chiastic structure of the rosary as a whole. So the first pairing then is the agony in the garden and the crucifixion. The agony and the crucifixion are linked as the bookends of the passion. In the agony, Christ ascends the Mount of Olives, sorrowful even unto death. He stands apart from his disciples and prays to the Father that the chalice be removed from him while entrusting his will to the Father. He sheds the first blood of his passion, but is comforted, Luke tells us, by an angel. In the crucifixion, our Lord ascends another hill, this time the hill of Calvary, walking to his death again. He is raised on the cross apart from his mother, the holy women, and the beloved disciple. Right? So there's a kind of shared isolation or alienation here. Um, in place of his prayer to have the chalice removed from him, he declares, I thirst, and prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He sheds the last blood, this time blood and water of the passion, and commends his soul to the Father, satisfied that his great work has been consummated. Right? So both mysteries sort of end with a kind of consolation, even a con- but a consolation that has to do with suffering or having suffered the passion in its fullness. This pair can also be seen as a tale of two gardens, as it were. And of course, every time we allude to a garden, we have to consider the Garden of Eden as well. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord confronts 
the great challenge. The challenge, if I can speak in this way, of whether he will prioritize his own human life, the, great, the greatest of natural goods, or God's will. This echoes Adam and Eve's temptation. The fruit of the knowledge of good and evil appears to offer their, uh, the completion of their natural good, and so they sinfully eat death unto themselves. Our Lord inverts this in Gethsemane, embracing, though fearing, the death that he finds in the Father's will. Where Adam sinned in refusing to fast, Christ obeys in drinking from the cup. Furthermore, in the crucifixion, our Lord turns the cross into a new tree of the knowledge of good and evil and unites it with the new tree of life. He himself becomes the fruit of this unified tree. For who was more intimately acquainted with grief? Who knew evil more intimately through suffering it than Christ himself? But in suffering this knowledge and giving of himself eucharistically, he also becomes for us um, our access to the knowledge of good and of life everlasting. The innermost pairing is, I admit, the most difficult for me to see um, sort of slam dunk connections with. But I do have a couple of thoughts um, and I want to share them with you. So uh, the things that I think draw the two together, uh, the first would be just looking at um, one of the verses from the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53. Here's the passage. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. So these two verses link the bearing and carrying of our griefs and sorrows, which recalls the carrying of the cross, with stripes or the wounds associated with scourging. Both of these penalties are borne particularly upon the back. These mysteries in tandem then draw our focus to the endurance of our Lord in his passion and call us to wonder, perhaps, how are our shoulders doing? How can I grow in patient endurance? There are certain features of the two mysteries which are opposing to each other, and that's also okay in a chiastic structure. In the scourging, Christ is stationary, while in the carriage, of course, he's in motion, though in both cases he is, as it were, bound to a pillar of sorts. In the scourging, uh, Christ is near the heart of Jerusalem, inside a Roman courtyard, whereas the carriage takes him outside of the walls. Perhaps in these opposing features, we can see what the, po the poets call sort of a polar doublet. When you say sort of man, uh, men and women, children and old men. The idea is you're, you're covering the whole of, of, um, sort of everything that's in between, right? The young and the old and everyone in between. So maybe in the interior and the exterior, we see a sort of polar doublet, the evocation of two things which include everything between them. That is, then we would see that Christ's suffering is kind of universal, almost ubiquitous. Now the last thing I want to do is to focus in on the crowning with thorns. It's the central mystery of the rosary. Um, and as such, as the center of a chiastic structure, it will show us um, something at the heart of the whole, um, the whole thing, the whole structure. Okay? So in John's Gospel, we read how Pilate, having Jesus clothed in purple garments, regal garments, brings him out before the congregation of those calling for his death. The verse that is most relevant is John 19, 5. 
So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Ecce homo. We're, of course, accustomed to the addition of a definite article here, right? Um, Ecce homo in Latin just means behold man. We're used to hearing behold the man. And in Greek, of course, it's, it, it includes the definite article. So it's, it's a perfectly correct translation. Behold the man is a perfectly correct translation. But I like looking at the Latin too, and it's linguistically supported by the Greek as well, in seeing ecce homo as in its allegorical light. Behold man. Behold humankind. What Pilate is doing is showing us humanity in the person of Christ. He displays mankind in the person of the crowned and robed Jesus. Look, man. Clearly, this is a central moment and a great question is set before us. What is man then, according to this Johannine account? Christ, at this moment, fully manifests what it means to be man. Man is, in fact, a king, but a king crowned with thorns. Now, the symbol of the thorns refers back to Genesis 3 and the curse which is laid upon Adam. Thorns and thistles, it, the world, shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. The curse laid upon man is imaged by thorns and the sweat of the brow. The crown of the suffering Christ is made from thorns and draws forth a bloody sweat, as it were, from his brow. It, in his passion, Christ is revealed to be man and to be the king of men by bearing, in a paradoxical triumph, the very emblems of man's fallenness. By bearing the crown of thorns as a sinless victim, Christ changes the tokens of man's infidelity into the fullest revelation of fidelity in the midst of the very act which yields the grace by which infidelity can be forgiven. He reveals man to be the being whose glory and regal authority resides in bearing the effects of the fall holily. So this central mystery of the rosary shows us Christ who has, been, who has entered radically into our fall and whose glory is to be found in suffering it fully. It is a coronation of a kind, a coronation with which we in the church militant can identify. It is a coronation in which we can participate by bearing the effects of the fall patiently. This coronation also points us backwards to the first crowning of the rosary in the incarnation when Our Lady crowned her son's divine person with human flesh so that he could enter this moment. But it also points us to the last coronation at the end of the rosary when Mary is brought forth gloriously and crowned with eternal glory. Christ suffers the effect of the fall so that we can join him in heaven forever in his glory. And in Mary, who is the great, greatest type and member of the church, she receives her final gift, and we can see the, the gift that is stored up for us. So may she, through our meditation on the mysteries which she has laid before us in her rosary, bring us to our own heavenly coronation. Thank you for joining us today. 
this lecture and other lectures, uh, other Principles Live lectures are available um, at getprinciples.com. And I'd like to address some of the questions. Thank you so much. So the first question, how do you perceive the inclusion of the Luminous Mysteries as relating to Our Lady? That's a really good question. Um, and um, so Our Lady is present with Christ all the time um, in, in his ministry. I mean, it, so it seems. I mean, I, uh, forgive me for not being um, a more perfect biblical scholar. I, I guess I'm a little unsure if, if I can back that claim up, but that's how I've been given to understand it at any rate, that Our Lady is always present with Christ. So in, in this sense, she's, she's with him at all of the mysteries, um, except I, I don't actually know if she's present at the, at the Holy Table. So forgive me for not knowing. Maybe we should ask the theologians about this question. Um, so she's always with our Lord and always sort of hiddenly sustaining him. Um, but uh, just one further thought that I have about sort of the luminous mysteries as part of the rosary or, or as a separate devotion that's near the rosary or like the rosary, um, it does seem to me that the, the sort of traditional 15 decades more clearly show us sort of the life of Mary with Christ in a way that is a little less sort of patently clear in the Luminous Mysteries. So uh, I, I don't think I answered the question particularly, but um, that's, that, those are the thoughts that I have with regard to it. Um, what prayers should be added to the decades? All of the Fatima prayers in St. Michael? This is a good question. Um, uh, a question about which different People have different thoughts. Um, I love to say all the Fatima prayers, um, and in large part, I think Our Lady's—you know—Our Lady gave us the Fatima prayers um, to attach to the Rosary, and so you know it's her devotion, it's her thing. <laughs> so I think it probably behooves us to add them. Um, I love the Saint Michael prayer; it is beautiful, and so I, I guess—I mean, my thought—and just take this for what it's worth. My thought is. Um, as many as the devotional habits of your family can sustain. Right? Um, I think it's good to say prayers, but if it becomes burdensome, if it's the breaking point between the ability to say this devotion with your family, with your kids, and, and not, I would say the heart of it is, is the, you know, the standard old prayers. Um, so add what you can. Um, without growing tired. That's my thought about it. Should scripture verses be used as meditation before each decade? Should? Uh, yeah, so back to the first caveat that I made. Uh, what I'm saying here is, you know, one way of thinking about the rosary. Um, scriptural rosaries are awesome. What a beautiful way of entering into the mysteries of the rosary. And what, I, I think it's a, a marvelous way of both um, reinvigorating these mysteries for us. I mean, we of course, you know, we, we, we say that we say the rosary, you know, frequently, regularly, hope, you know, hopefully daily. Um, and, the, and the temptation, of course, is to let it become rote. It's just that it becomes this thing that we do. Um, and so I think meditating on the scriptures um, that are relevant are, is so, so wonderful. And I think it's a wonderful devotion, too, that helps us to enter more deeply into the scriptures. It works beautifully both ways. Um, and, and one of the things I love about scriptural rosaries is that there are so many different ones, right? Uh, back, in, back in the old days, I used to dream about, you know, composing different scriptural rosaries. How many could I get, you know? Because um, I think there's, there's so many. There's so many to be found. So uh, is it a good habit? I absolutely think so. 
Um, but my response to the should part of the question maybe goes back to what I was saying about number two as well. I think that if the habit of reading the scriptures um, ends up making it impossible to say the mysteries, then, then I, I, I might not force it. Um, but I think it's a good, I think it's a really, really beautiful habit, a really helpful way of unlocking the mysteries and making them present so we can meditate on them. Examples in non-Catholic literature where the rosary is used or seen as allegory, where the rosary is used or seen as allegory. Wow. Um. <laughs> well, um, I, one of the funny things, uh, sorry, this, this maybe is a, a bit of a, a funny answer, but, um, and I have to caveat it too, um, but in Hamlet, actually, one of the characters' names is um, the Danish word for rosary. Rosenkrantz is the word for rosary. It literally means the rosy prayers. Um, uh, and so it's interesting to work out how that allegory works. Uh, <laughs> it would take a lot longer than uh, the time we have here, and it would require uh, sort of more, more of a reading of Hamlet. But that, that's the one that comes to my mind immediately. I wish, I wish that more were coming to my mind. Um, perhaps I'll answer a different kind of question about this later, but we'll see. Um, the next question, is the use of chiasm a human or divine influence on the structure of the rosary? It's a really, really good question. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, I think it's um, a beautiful manifestation of the cooperation between you know, God and man. Now, I guess um, I, I have to admit that the history of the sort of the, the, the crystallization of the 15 mysteries is something that I don't know 100% of. I know, I've been given to understand that St. Dominic essentially had the same 15 given to him to, to beat the Albigensians with. Um, uh, if, if I'm mistaken on that, please do forgive me. Um, so in that case, I mean, Our Lady is literally coming out of heaven and revealing these things to St. Dominic. I mean, if, if I like to believe that story. I hope it's true. Um, in, in which case, then, I mean, Our Lady is just like the perfect example of a will, I mean, with, with Christ, of course, but of a will which is at once human and absolutely indistinguishable from God's will. Um, and so, you know, and she is suffused with divine wisdom, right? So, so that, you know, giving the, the mysteries in this way um, becomes actually an act of inspiration. Um, I, one, another thing I would say is that the I didn't mention this in my remarks earlier, but the chiasm is the is taken by sort of the ancient commentators to be the preeminent structure that manifests um, foreknowledge, that manifests sort of wisdom. That is, in in order to construct a chiasm, you have to know the end from the beginning, right? You have to include the end in the beginning and develop in such a way that every part is is. Um, you know, taking cognizance of the part that had come before and that every uh, part on the other side of the crux is in some regard illuminated by and illuminating the part with which it's paired. So in, in that regard, I think there's something of, um, there's something that manifests God's sort of omniscience in it. It's, it's a really beautiful way of, uh, of sort of structurally manifesting that kind of omniscience. Um, I think it has a kind of divine character to it. Um, why do we find this structure? Are there other structures that could be applied for greater depth of understanding? Yeah, uh, absolutely, uh, I would say. I, I, I like this kind of structure 
Um, it's a really preeminent structure in scriptural studies. Um, again, I'm a literature prof, and um, scripture studies is uh, something I love, but I'm, I'm an amateur in that regard. Um, but it's hard to crack open a book that has to do with the literary structure of the Bible and the particular books of the Bible without um, coming into immediate contact with chiastic structures, both of whole books, of parts of books. So it's, it's a structure that's used a lot, just all the time, in, uh, by, the, by the divine writers, uh, or by, you know, by the, the human authors who are inspired by God. Um, so in, in, that's why I focus on it, because I, I love it, and I think it's a really beautiful and explanatory structure. But are there other structures that could be applied for greater depth of understanding? Absolutely. Um, I was talking with one of my colleagues yesterday about this, and uh, he, mentioned, he mentioned that he sees a, a chiastic structure. I know this is kind of the same thing, but he sees a chiastic structure in the, uh, in the glorious mysteries you know, by themselves. I think that, I think that that's one, you know, one way of seeing it, is that each um, set of mysteries is its own sort of structure. I think it's wonderful to try comparing, say, um, a parallel structure. So what do we gain by comparing the Annunciation with the agony in the garden with the resurrection? Probably a lot. Thinking about these things in, the, in this way, uh, I think is probably really useful. Um, of course, there's also, you know, just thinking about the way that the mysteries develop one from the next, you know, as the plot, the, the linear development of the plot. I mean, of course, that's, that's central. That's, it's, it's the fundamental thing that one does. And then these other sort of structural elements are sort of superimposed upon that. So, yeah, I think there's, I think there's a, a lots of ways. There's many, many ways. Um, if you think of one that's wonderful, please email me. I'd love to hear more. Um, where can we find a copy of these pairings? That's a good question. Um, I have a document that has them, and I can disseminate it to the powers that be if that's a thing that happens here. So um, that's the end of the questions that I see prepared for me. Let me thank you again, um, and God bless you. Thank you for joining us for today's Principles Live Lecture. Principles is made possible by our President's Council, our Principles Society, and all of our benefactors who share with the wider world the truths of wisdom and knowledge that students receive here at Christendom College. And if you're not yet a Principles Society member, please consider joining us and making this content free for others. Thank you so much and God bless you.